Hello, Great Women Artists listeners. It's Katie here. And just before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know I have very excitingly written a book, which is out this September, called The Story of Art Without Men. This book aims to retell art history with pioneering non-male artists who spearheaded movements and redefined the canon. It is available to pre-order now from Waterstones and more, and I have linked to the book in the show notes. But in this series, I am so thrilled to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the past two years. Alighieri creates fragmented talismans of imperfection hand-cast in London's Hatton Garden from recycled silver and gold. The brand was founded by Rosh Matani to guide her through a dark time. Each piece has a story and invites you to unlock your own. Dante Alighieri was an Italian poet. In the 1300s, he wrote the story of waking up in hell and making the journey to paradise, creating a book of 100 poems entitled The Divine Comedy. In the depths of his darkness, Dante is lost in a dark wood and is confronted by a terrifying lion, so very much that even the air around it was trembling with fear. Dante is overcome and ready to give up when somehow the Roman poet Virgil appears to guide Dante. In this moment, despair turns to a flicker of courage. The story inspired Roche to create the Leone Medallion, a talisman to be worn as a reminder to be strong in moments of self-doubt. Discover Alighieri's range of Leone medallions, available in solid gold, sterling silver and signature 24-carat gold-plated. The latest addition is the opportunity to make the Leone necklace your very own symbol of strength and courage. This new personalised talisman comprises the iconic silver medallion and your choice of our signature molten gold-plated initial. Visit www.alighieri.com for more and don't forget to use the code TGWA at checkout for a 10% discount for Great Women Artists listeners. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the esteemed art historian and Chicago art expert, Susan Weininger the Professor Emerita of Art History at Roosevelt University, Illinois. Susan has curated exhibitions, lectured and written extensively on Chicago artists from Ivan Albright, Tunis Poson, Todros Geller, Frances Strain, Hazel and Vin Hanel, to Gladys Nilsson, as well as modernist Chicago art in general, with a particular interest in women artists and Jewish artists. The co-curator of Chicago Modern, 1893 to 1945, The Pursuit of the New at the Terra Museum of Art, Art, for which she also contributed essays to the catalogue. Susan has also contributed to the likes of Chicago Painting, 1895 to 1945, the Bridges Collection of Chicago Painting, Art for the People, the Mural Reference Book for the Chicago Public Schools, among many others. 
Currently serving on the board of the New Deal Center of Roosevelt University, Susan is also on the advisory board of the Illinois Women Artists Project and is a docent at the Illinois Holocaust Museum and Education Center. But the reason why we are speaking to Susan today is because she is also a world expert and has also been instrumental in the resurgence of one of my favorite artists of all time, the phenomenal mid-century surrealist painter and self-dubbed Queen of Bohemia, Gertrude Abercrombie, for whom she has curated exhibitions of, written extensively, including the 2018 exhibition at New York's Karma Gallery, and in my opinion, is an artist, again, thanks to Susan, who is finally getting the rightful recognition she deserves, including a major retrospective at the Carnegie Museum of Art in Pittsburgh called Maud to the Moon, and who is very excitingly the artist we will be discussing today. Susan Weininger, welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine and thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. It's such an honour to speak with you. So I first discovered Gertrude Abercrombie in an article around 2016 and immediately became captivated. I mean, they are just the most innovative, surrealist, haunting, eerie, bizarre and brilliant paintings I've ever seen. Whether they might be slightly larger landscapes with moons, cats, doors or stairs to nowhere or minuscule paintings or portraits, domestic scenes or still lifes, levitating bodies with limbs floating in the air, they just never fail to utterly fascinate me because I want to know where are these worlds from? Where do they lead to? Abercrombie's paintings look deceptively simple, but they are just full of meaning and they resonate as you look more closely at them. They usually contain a repertoire of objects that were really her things. Yeah. Uh, There are lots of cats and she always had many cats in her household. There is Victorian furniture. She once said, it is always myself that I paint, but a little better because I'm not that cute. Something (laughs) like that. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But I think that each of these paintings in some way is a self-portrait. And although we do see the same objects reappearing, they never reappear in the same way twice. They're eternally interesting, really. Absolutely. I think they're just, there's just so much behind them. I love the fact that you say, you know, there is this simplicity to them, yet there's just this hauntingness. It's like this almost still from a scene. You want to just kind of get into it. So, I mean, although Gertrude Abercrombie is now beginning to be celebrated, I mean, how and when did you first come across her work? I worked with a man named Don Baum, who is also an underrecognized artist. And when Gertrude Abercrombie died, he was appointed artistic executor of her estate. And one of the things he wanted to do was to have something written about her to memorialize her, to make her her art a bit more permanent. And he asked whether I would be interested. And I knew nothing about her. I knew nothing about Chicago art. I had studied medieval and Renaissance art. But by that time, I had a family and I thought, wow, this might be a really interesting project. I won't have to go anywhere. And so I said yes. And when I saw her work, it was just riveting. It was so interesting. And it took me on this journey, not only to learn about Gertrude Abercrombie, but to learn about the 
richness of what was going on in this city in the period after World War I till the present time. I mean, this is a very interesting art community, which is, I think, finally getting the recognition from the outside world that it deserves. I mean, how did you feel when you first came across her work? I mean, what were your initial reactions? I was just astonished. Your first exposure makes you feel as if you've discovered something that was really, really important. And I was really drawn to her interiors initially, these rooms that were closed, and they almost had a aquarium-like feel. They were just so tight and closed, and sometimes there was almost nothing in them. Sometimes Every once in a while, there would be a room that was actually kind of warm and homey. And one of my favorite of these rooms is a painting called The Past and the Present. And it dates from, I believe, about the mid-40s. And it is a room uh, that she lived in in a building called the Weinstein Building, which was her first independent apartment after she was earning a living. And that was where she found her freedom. And the Weinstein interior was painted after she had moved out of the Weinstein building. But it's a room with a couch with pillows on it. There are actually two doors. They're tightly shut, but there are two of them. And on the back wall, there's a little painting on the back wall. And that little painting is a painting of the house she currently lives in on Dorchester Street. So the past is the big picture. The present is the little picture. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, what I find so interesting about her work is usually when you look at paintings, you don't necessarily always sort of feel like the only person in the world. But when you look at her paintings, you actually feel like you're the only person on this planet in a way. Everything is so sort of desolate and lonely and isolated. And, you know, that interior is kind of coming at us and it's just so silent. The doors just kind of stop in your faces. There's nowhere to go. There are just kind of doors leading to nowhere. That's why I want to get into these worlds and kind of where do they, where do they begin and where do they end? You've said that beautifully, really. They're fascinating and I really came to understand them as a kind of interior portrait. Uh, sort of a portrait of her own loneliness, which if you read about her life, she had such a uh, big social circle and she gave parties and she was the center of attention and she was lively and sociable. But I think inside, she felt this very, very lonely quality and an outsider quality. Yeah, it's even just the sound of her painting and how everything seemed to be almost sort of slightly levitating. Even when you look at the lamp or the glass or something, it's so bare. Even, I don't know, you just, yes. you're, just, you're just completely drawn to the kind of isolatedness of it. So I want to get into this marvellous life she had in a moment, but I want to go back to her beginnings. I mean, Gertrude Abercrombie was born in Texas in 1909. She was an only child. Her parents were travelling opera singers who happened to be in Austin on the day of her birth. I mean, who were her family and what was her childhood like? Well, her parents actually went to Austin on purpose. They were very, very immersed in the musical world, particularly her mother who seems to have been the more talented of the, or the more desired of the two, let's say. And they went to Austin because 
Her mother, whose name was Lula Janes, had a sister who lived there whose name was Gertrude. So it was Gertrude's aunt Gertrude who, for whom she was named. Her yeah. parents were Christian scientists. Her mother, I believe, embraced it or became stricter or whatever after she uh, had a goiter. Because she was a singer, this was a very serious problem, and it really ended her operatic career. And that was when she became a very, very serious Christian scientist. Christian scientists believe there's a kind of spiritual healing of the body. They do not believe in doctors. And when Gertrude's mother got ill, she was persuaded that she would be cured through prayer and her body would mend itself. It did not work. And then, I mean, in 1913, I mean, when Gertrude was four, the family moved to Berlin, but they were forced back to the USA? Exactly. They moved because her mother got a a kind of fellowship at an opera school, and Gertrude learned German. She was a child. Unfortunately, about a year later, when the war broke out, they had to leave Europe, and they came back to the States, and they went to Aledo, Illinois very, very small town in Western Illinois, where Gertrude's father's family lived. There were cousins there, a big extended family. And for an only child, this was paradise. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, am I right in thinking that she actually didn't sort of set out to be an artist originally? Because in 1929, she graduated with a degree in Romance Languages from the University of Illinois. I mean, how did she make the move from languages to art? She would say, I took a few art classes in college because they were easier than history or economics. (laughs) But I have seen some of her work. And I might add that in the 1920s, the pedagogy was very, very conservative out here in the Midwest. So even at the School of the Art Institute, which was like the premier art academy, they were still doing Beaux-Arts Uh, teaching, where figure drawing was like the pinnacle of what you could do. Her drawings were studies in perspective, and she did many still life objects such as vases. And these vases and bowls are very, very, very close to the objects that you see in her finished paintings from years later. She really, really learned how to do beautiful perspectival images of still life objects. She never learned to draw a figure. And, you know, that's one of the beauties of her work. It's sometimes not really technically adept, yeah, but it still works so well. But she had a knack for languages and she loved word games. She loved puns and things of that sort. And of course, she loved music. And so she had that in her background as well. So when she got out of school, being an artist was not a very clear career choice. But she did get a job as a commercial artist. And she got a job at the Messero Department Store Drawing Gloves. And she called herself a glove artist. And at the department store, she met a man named Tud Kempf, who encouraged her toward being an artist. And she then went, she got a job at Sears, which was a bigger operation. 
And she began to meet some artists. And then in 1933, she, like many, many other artists, now we're in the Depression, took her work to the Grant Park Art Fair. Many, almost every artist in Chicago went. Some of them sold $100 worth of art and were thrilled uh, with that. And it may have been 100 paintings, I don't know. And artists like Ivan Albright, who was already pretty famous, was pricing his work at $15,000, $20,000, so he didn't sell anything there. But Abercrombie sold a painting. So that was a kind of validation. So now she was an artist. She sold a painting. And it opened her eyes to the diversity of the world. And she met the, all these people, and it was wonderful. And she felt this sense of community, because these were people who were like her. They were other people who were outside the mainstream. So, I mean, this is really exciting. It's the 1930s. You know, she's finding her tribe in a way. She's beginning to exhibit and gain recognition. But am I right in thinking, I mean, what was the Chicago art scene like at this time? Because am I right in thinking that she even met people like Gertrude Stein? She did meet Gertrude Stein. When Gertrude Stein came to Chicago, she came first in 1934, and she made such a hit that she was invited back in 1935 to give some lectures at the university. But in addition to that, she met with small groups of people, and she brought some paintings with her to this meeting (gasps) for Gertrude Stein to evaluate. According to Gertrude Abercrombie, Stein said to her, these are very pretty, but girl, you got to learn to paint more neatly. (laughs) So according to her recollection, went home and made a painting, and the painting was called There on the Table, and she submitted it to the Art Institute annual Chicago and Vicinity show the next year, and she won a big prize. So she said... That it was good advice. It's a still life painting of a group of objects on a table that also includes a cat. Of course. And behind the table, you see a headless body. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's fascinating as well that, you know, you mentioned earlier that she was a, she called herself a glove painter. Yes. Because in a way, those sort of missing limbs or those kind of floating limbs in her, in her paintings, they do look a bit like sort of lost legs, lost gloves, etc. There's something quite surreal about that as well. Absolutely. And she used those gloves. They look as if they're moving or they're active or they have something animating them. Uh, there's a very wonderful self-portrait called self-portrait of my sister. And as we know, Gertrude was an only child. Um, So even the title has a mystery about it. And in front of her body are these gloved hands, but they seem to be activated independently of, of her body entirely. You were right to notice that those gloves often appear to have life, even if they aren't attached to a body. But that self-portrait of my sister is fascinating because also, although they probably are attached to this figure, they also could be these other hands coming from somewhere else. I mean, they're so opaque compared to the rest of the figure. I feel like there are so many different sort of characters kind of looming in her works. I mean, one of my favourite works, which is one of her earlier landscapes, is Landscape with Church from 1939, which kind of depicts this woman. I mean, first of all, it looks like a landscape with a sort of tiny little church and a few sort of cluster of trees, a moon that always brights up her work and these amazing flat clouds. And if you look really closely, you can actually see there's a path and there's a lone woman on this country path with this sort of miniature chapel and in a way it's just 
just completely overshadowed by this vast kind of rolling panorama. I mean, could you tell us about how her work was developing and also this work in particular? Yeah, we see these landscapes that initially look pretty conventional. They look like regionalist landscapes. And she was working on a lot of them in the 30s and in the 40s when this was really, really an important uh, bit of Americana. And then as you look closer, you see this mysterious figure, this uh, often a figure with with a wide brimmed hat, a long dress. And sometimes I wonder whether it was because it was easier than painting legs to paint a long dress. <laughs> and it's clearly a journey. Going to the church, I don't think represents finding religion. By this time, Gertrude was far removed from any kind of uh, organized religion. She was. So she, she wasn't a Christian scientist. She was not a Christian scientist. The minute she moved out of that house into the Weinstein building, she was drinking and smoking and having sex and doing all the things that her parents said, no, 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 you should not do. But that church, I think, is probably a simplification of a real church in Alito. And, you know, these churches had, like, the priest would go on a a route around the small towns. Not all the towns had their own churches. And I think it may have represented going home to her, going home to a place of acceptance and warmth and family. And I think that many of the landscapes represented that connection to Alito. Yeah. But then there is also this, you know, idea, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but there's also this idea that she actually never gets there in the painting because the paintings never actually reveal her finishing anywhere. That's true. That's true. I mean, what is it about this kind of sense of abandonment that she, or loneliness that she felt so inclined to create pictures of? Uh, First of all, she felt like an ugly duckling. Her mother was very, very beautiful, this beautiful diva, and she was not beautiful. As a young woman, she looked attractive, and in some of her paintings, she even made herself look attractive. In other paintings, she made herself look really forbidding. But I do think she felt maybe alien in her own home, because I I think from a young age, she felt that difference from her parents um, and the, the desire to go out and be her own person. But I can pretty much assert that she felt she did feel lonely, even though she was surrounded by people who loved her. She found people who adored her and made them her friends. Absolutely. And I mean, it's just fascinating. I mean, the work that she's making here is at Competent Grapes in 1941. I mean, she, it's it's about, I mean, two and a half inches high. Some of her work she actually made completely miniature with these kind of amazingly elaborate frames. I mean, can you tell us about those kind of miniature paintings? She began to paint these miniature paintings. She made some during the 40s. And then there was a sort of explosion during the 50s. And at that time, she had them made into brooches, pins, oh that my God. she had a jeweler wow. create the frames that looked like painting frames, but they also had a pin on the back so that you could wear them. 
One of the reasons I believe she made so many of them was because she really needed to earn some money. And she sold them at places like the Hyde Park Art Fair, and she was very popular there. I don't know quite what the prices were, but they were probably very inexpensive, 5 or $10. Some of them are just exquisite. Amazing. But I mean, coming back to the sort of 1940s, listening to you and this idea of Americana and kind of fitting in with actually that kind of Midwestern painting, I mean, it is quite Grant Wood-esque. It is quite sort of Hopper-esque, that kind of isolatedness and the landscape and the kind of convention in a way, but making the, the kind of unconventional elder the conventional. You look at one thing and then you look a bit harder and something appears that actually isn't doesn't sit well. But I'm also fascinated by surrealism because these works are obviously very kind of aesthetically surreal. I mean, would she have known about the surrealists working around the world at this time? Because I guess at this time, you know, people were moving from Europe to America. I don't know that she knew any personally. She did mention that uh, when she saw a painting by Magritte, that he was her spiritual daddy. She saw something in Magritte's work that resonated with her. But I'm not sure she saw anything by Magritte before she began on her own journey. I don't think she really would have considered herself a surrealist, but she did admit that her work was kind of surreal because it was her own reality and it didn't always conform to what one saw. Yeah, I love this quote by her is, surrealism is meant for me because I'm a pretty realistic person but don't like all I see. So I dream that it has changed, that I change it to the way I want it. It is almost always pretty real. Only mystery and fantasy have been added. All foolishness has been taken out. It becomes my own dream. And I love this idea that in a way she was completely inventing this language herself. But I mean, one can't help but think of someone like Leonor Feeney, who deals with this idea of kind of desolate landscapes, cats, moons, these kind of surrealist landscapes where kind of dreams come alive you know, the glove. I mean, the glove pops up in Feeney's work so much. It's it's sort of fascinating to think that she had all these painterly acquaintances around the world in Mexico, Leonora Carrington, yes. who were kind of yes. doing the same sort of thing. And it's just yes. very interesting that, you know, they are all women in a way. Yes, yes. And in Chicago too, there were a number of women who were doing this kind of incredible fantasy and surreal painting. And there was a freedom, you know, there was a freedom, I think, Being here in the Midwest and being a woman offered a kind of opportunity to do what you wanted because really no one was paying that much attention to you anyway. And um, (laughs) I think it was really liberating. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, would she ever venture out of Chicago and visit other artists? Do you know of? Very rarely. For a person who had a mastery of many languages, It's interesting that she never went back to Europe. She traveled to New York in the 19 late 40s and 50s when she had a couple of exhibitions there. She spent one summer in Provincetown, Massachusetts, and she had a show there. But that's not a lot of travel. uh, Yeah. And no international travel. And so, I mean, I mean, I have to ask because, I mean, I look at something like The Visit from 1944. I love how her work is just getting more and more, you know, this kind of idea of kind of almost the supernatural is being heightened. I mean, was she ever interested in the occult or supernaturalism at all? Oh, yes. She believed there were ghosts in her house. 
She tells a story about how she heard somebody playing the saxophone, I believe, in her house one night. And she got up in the morning. She had a student who was living there with her. And she said, were you playing the saxophone last night? And he said, no, I thought you were playing the saxophone last night. (laughs) And they decided that it was the ghost of a jazz saxophonist who had recently died, who had visited. But she had other kinds of experiences that were kind of paranormal, where she would uh, have a dream about something, and then that object would appear. She had a dream uh, one night about... um, beached whale. And she, she, the next day in the newspaper, she saw a picture of a beached whale. She also painted things and then they appeared in real life. I mean, it's fascinating because in the 1940s, she marries a lawyer. 1942, she gives birth to a daughter called Dina. Yet she's kind of developing this incredible language in the sense that it's this amazing, again, this landscape, very desolate, almost desert-like. But I mean, she's living this quite conventional life in a way. I mean, not conventional, but she's married, she's got a child. And then she suddenly, in the kind of 1940s and 50s, becomes one of the leading figures in the Hyde Park art scenes. She divorces her husband. I mean, what was the Chicago art scene like and how did she then get involved? I mean, what happened? She was involved from the 30s in some of the independent artist groups. There were many, many independent artist groups as there were elsewhere. There were a number of other artist-run groups that put on exhibitions. She knew a lot of artists. She made her closest artist friends, these figures from Wisconsin. Carl Preeby was the person who introduced her to jazz in the 30s and introduced her to many of these musicians. And often they were African-American musicians. She married Bob Livingston in 1940. They then bought a house and the house was big enough for parties. (gasps) Amazing. And that's when in 1944, she began to entertain these musicians After their Saturday night gigs, they would come to her house and the party would be extended. And then they would have these Sunday afternoon jam sessions and everybody would come. It was artists, writers. She had friends who were writers. She was very, very musically talented. She played the piano very, very well. She often joined in with the musicians. She could hum and whistle in (gasps) harmony. No. At the same time. Oh my God, that's amazing. I've heard recordings <laughs> of it. It's true. No. Yes. Wow. <laughs> and it was before they could fake recordings. So she was very, very talented musically. And these parties, she was then the queen. And I don't know where the term queen of Bohemia came from. She was the queen of Chicago. That's what she called herself. She called Gertrude Stein the other Gertrude. She was the Gertrude. So in these gatherings, she was the center. She had all of these adoring friends and these jazz musicians who loved her. And they were in her home. There was lots of drinking. It was lively. It was fun. There was laughter. It was great. And that was a part of her. That was one part of her. And then there was this other part of her who was lonely, isolated person who you, you, know, you see reflected in these rooms that we talked about earlier. 
Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. You know, these salons just sound absolutely incredible. This is the kind of first time I've even hearing about the unlimitations of the Chicago art scene in the 40s and 50s. I mean, it just sounds electric and I wish I knew more about it. You never always concentrate on New York, but really Chicago so much was going on. But I mean, you know, people like Dizzy Gillespie would say about Abercrombie, she was the first bop artist in the painting world. Bop in the sense that she has taken the essence of our music and transported it into another art form. And Ernst Krenek composed one of his operas while renting the second floor of her home. And, you know, in 1958, the pianist Richie Powell composed Gertrude's Bounce in her honour. I mean, you know, it's just amazing. I mean, she sounds like a completely electric person who, no, you know, no doubt would be at the absolute centre of attention. I mean, how do you think music correlates with her work? And do you think she was actually influenced by music for her paintings? I think she was, but I think that the freedom of jazz, the liberating improvisational quality, all of those things were things that we see in her work. And there's also this idea of doing, I think, doing riffs on the same theme. She used these themes and then altered them slightly to make them completely new. And I think that that's a quality that jazz has as well. But I mean, I'm just fascinated by this idea of, you know, the music coming into her painting. Because I'm two paintings I'm looking at right now on my screen are Three Cats from 1956. It's of three cats, a ginger one, a black one, a grey one, with different coloured clouds above their head. And just a sort of simple cat bowl in front of them. I also have Four Doors Cat from 1957, which I'm now looking at like sort of piano keys. Oh, that's really interesting, Katie. I never thought of that. That's great. Well, it's only when you said, you know, jazz piano. And I mean, I love jazz piano and I I, I play it as well. And and I mean, no wonder I'm sort of so drawn to her work. But I now would always see, you know, never come in, you know, blocking me out from my life. Mm-hmm. Yes. Don't don't come past these walls. They're so mm-hmm. opaque. And now I'm seeing them as these kind of colourful, <laughs> moving doors, which yeah. kind of have life of its own. And, you know, you have the black keys, you have the white keys, and they all, the colours kind of represent these different notes. I think they could exist on both levels. They can be keeping you out and inviting you in. Absolutely powerful. But I mean, what did these recurring motifs such as the owl, the black cat, the crystal ball, the broomstick, these stairs to nowhere, what did they represent? Well, as a mature person, Abercrombie took on these roles. She performed in her life. She was a witch or she was a queen. These were powerful roles for women. The witch is usually seen as a kind of negative thing. She actually had a peaked cap. She wore that around Hyde Park. She would walk around in that. In fact, her daughter told me that the kids often made fun of her because they said her mother was a witch. And we see her in the guise of a witch or a queen. And the owl, the cat, the crystal ball to a certain extent, and some of these other Some of these other objects are familiars of the witch. She loved cats. She, I think, felt more maternal toward her cats than she did toward her (laughs) child. Um, She always, until her death, had had many cats in her household. And I think that's the primary reason why they turn up in her work. But I mean, the cat is so fascinating because someone like Leonora Carrington or Leonor Feeney, who were working in Paris and who were working in Mexico right at exactly the same time. There's something about women artists from this era who were just drawn to the cat. And Leonor Feeney, I did a podcast on her. And if you would go and interview with her and her cat would suss you out. And if she didn't like you, then Leonor Feeney didn't like you or something. 
I love that podcast too. But I think that maybe it is because there were very few ways in which women could express their power. So for Abercrombie and maybe for these other women too, this idea of associating yourself with a companion of the witch, a mysterious creature that had some kind of power was something that allowed them to own that power. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, what was kind of happening in the 50s? I mean, was she starting to gain recognition? Yes, yes, she was. In 1948, Gertrude divorced Bob Livingston. She didn't divorce him before she found him another wife. She located a person. She introduced them. Oh she my was God. the perfect woman for him. There's a painting called The Chess Game. You see in one corner of the chess, there are a group of people standing on a giant chessboard. And Gertrude is in the position, I believe, of the queen. And over in the other corner, they're facing each other, a woman and a man, and that is Bob and Virginia, his second wife. The moment she was divorced, she married Frank Sandiford. He was a cat burglar. He was a small-time burglar. He he had been in jail. A burglar? Uh, Like a robber? Yes. (laughs) Yes. He would sneak into people's houses at night and and rob them. He, He loved music. They shared this love of music. They were married in 1948 on New Year's Eve, right after the divorce was finalized. And they had a successful relationship for a while. He was dependent on her. So this was when she really had to bring the money in. This was yeah. when the used Rolls Royces um, came yes, into so her tell life. Me, tell me, what is, yes. what is this Rolls Royce story? Well, she bought them, and I think Frank had something to do with it. They didn't have Rolls Royces that would function. They were basically non-functional. I think they maybe made it right over to uh, 57th Street to the art fair, which was a few blocks away from the home. She would have one of those cars at the Hyde Park art fair with her. And often her paintings were leaned up against the the Rolls Royce or she, she, she was seated in front of it with her paintings surrounding her. So it became a kind of something that was kind of associated with her, although she never made a painting with the Rolls Royce in it. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, do we know anything about what she was like? Well, she was very funny, but she could be very imperious. You know, this idea that she was the Queen of Chicago, she started that idea. She was very, very warm to the people that she she loved, who were part of her circle. But she was smart, she was funny, and she may not have been very wifely either. (laughs) It doesn't sound like it. (laughs) Had Had she lived in a different time, she may have been different too. Yeah. Because she may not have felt as if she couldn't express her independence in a direct way. Yeah. Maybe there's a sense of sort of trapping in her painting as well. There's something about the sort of limitations of the sides and you can never really reach the top. Well, she did uh, explicitly picture herself as a prisoner in a sort of three-sided building and they were called trapped or entrapped. She did other paintings where her she's wearing a long dress that's pulled up to the wall and pinned to the wall so that she couldn't move. She called those snared. Is that her um, work, The Queen, from 1954? Yes, yes. 
And so in 1959, towards the end of that decade of the 1950s, I mean, she almost kind of gave up painting entirely. I mean, what led to this? Because, you know, just a few years ago, she was the queen of Chicago. She had increasing health problems, and most of them were were really alcohol-related. She had been an alcoholic for some time. She had pancreatitis. She had very severe arthritis that uh, limited her movement. And although she did continue to paint, um, and uh, even in 1971, she painted a, a painting that was based on an album cover that she had created for a jazz musician named Orlando Murden. So (gasps) she was continuing to work, but on a less productive schedule. Yeah, but I mean, you know, she was subject to a retrospective just a few months before her death in 1977. I mean... And I've read that, you know, in a typical poetic, tough and funny form, when she spoke to Studs Terkel about attending her own 1977 opening, she said she would go out either in a blizzard or a blaze of glory. And I think that is so kind of Gertrude Abercrombie. I mean, how did she take this recognition right at the end of her life? I think she loved it. I think she loved it. She was in a wheelchair, but the pictures of her, she looks so happy. She's surrounded by her work. She's surrounded by her friends. She was once again the center of attention, the queen of Chicago. She was very aware of her legacy. Before this, at the end of her life, she began to collect her own work. She would buy back things or trade things. She wanted to have the very best examples of her work in hand so that when she died, uh, she made it a provision of her will that they would all her work be given to public institutions so that those works would be protected. I mean, why do you think that she is having this renaissance now? I mean, what, what is it about the work that you think draws people from this time? I think it's the same thing that interested the people who bought her work when it was for sale in the 1940s and 1950s. It's just that not as many people have the opportunity to look at it. And it may be that it's just a moment when we are you know, we, we can resonate with these um, personal yet universal feelings that are so clearly evident in her work. It's just, I've just become obsessed with it. You know, there's just nothing like it. And it's absolutely amazing. But I mean, what, what do you think Gertrude Abercrombie's work has taught you? Oh, my! I just am so grateful to her, not only for the sort of emotional nuance, the way in which she is able to transform deep, complicated, moving feelings into works of art that are so resonant, but for also allowing me to learn about all of these other Chicago artists that I've learned about. She opened a new world for me, really. Amazing. Amazing. Susan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's just been the most fascinating chat. But as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could have met Gertrude Abercrombie, perhaps you could have attended one of her salons in the 1940s. Would there be anything that you would have said or you would have asked her? I thought about this because, of course, I've listened to your podcast. So, you know, this is not a trick question anymore. And I doubt whether I would have been invited to one of her salons in the 40s because I was not her type. I'm a woman. uh, You're Jewish, aren't you? 
she would have loved Jewish, to. But I, I don't know <laughs> that that was something that would have attracted me. I, I think uh, jazz musicians and gay men were her primary fans. So I think rather than asking her a question, I think what I'd say to her is, you really made it, girl. You made it. <laughs> and I wish she was here to see that. Amazing. Susan Weininger, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with the fantastic Susan Weininger on the brilliant Gertrude Abercrombie. It was such a fascinating insight into her life and work. The sound editor on this episode was the wonderful Nardis Milenic and research assistant was Viva Ruji. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I'd be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. And thank you so much to our sponsor, Alighieri Jewellery. Visit their work at www.alighieri.com and don't forget to use the code TGWA for a 10% discount at checkout. 